Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host. And this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. As product managers, a lot of us deal with the same issues. We can't find time to work with customers. We don't know how to respond to the conflict and requests that we get nearly daily. And we're unsure how to define success for our product. And at times we wonder exactly what we should be doing each day. In short, we feel overwhelmed and not in control of our work. But it doesn't have to be that way. I discovered how in my own career... And then I trained thousands of product managers at numerous companies on the concepts that I used to do the same thing for them, to help them not be overwhelmed. I use the word IDEA, I-D-E-A, to convey those concepts. It stands for ideate, develop, evolve, and accelerate. I call it my IDEA framework, and companies have paid me more than $30,000 to teach these concepts to their product managers, a sum they quickly make back and increase product success you'll be paying a lot less. And instead of paying, ask your company to purchase this training for you. It will be well worth it for you and them. And now the IDEA Framework is a proven online course, an easy-to-take online course anytime you want. And of course, I always provide great deals to listeners. So I create a special page for you to learn more about the IDEA Framework course. It provides you a 20% discount. Please find it at theeverydayinnovator.com slash idea. That's the everydayinnovator.com slash I-D-E-A. Please check it out. You'll find it makes you a product manager that doesn't feel overwhelmed, but feels in control. And when you learn the idea framework, I know you'll say, I wish I had known this sooner. So take action now and don't wait any longer to take control of your career. Also, enrollment will be closing soon for the year. Again, learn more at the everydayinnovator.com slash I-D-E-A. If you need help getting your company to pay for the course, just let me know. Now, the discussion coming up in this episode is about the state of 3D printing for prototyping and additive manufacturing. 3D printing is evolving quickly, and the capabilities are now available to print in a wide variety of materials. Also, there's post-processing methods such as metal plating plastic printed parts to create really new opportunities for those ergonomically correct parts. It opens up some new possibilities for us, not just for prototyping. We'll talk some details about that in just a bit. 3D printing provides significant efficiencies and competitive advantages for us. I discussed the state of 3D printing and additive manufacturing with industry veteran John Belliotti. His background couples engineering, manufacturing, financial research, marketing, Business development and leadership, it's a pretty good combination, really providing a valuable perspective in helping companies adopt additive manufacturing processes. And remember, if you hear something that you want to review later in the interview, just head over to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 153. That's where you'll find the show notes for this episode and a summary of our discussion. I hope you enjoy the interview. John, thank you for being on the Everyday Innovator podcast. Chad, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm glad we can talk. We've only pursued 3D printing once before on this podcast, kind of in a design aspect. And it's an area of real interest to me. I waded into this area a little bit, maybe now three, four years ago, when I helped teach a a group of kids. They were like nine to 13 years old 
on what is 3D printing about. And and this was, I, I did it because I wanted to learn. I had no idea. So <laughs> we, we, we got ourselves a little filament 3D printer and we learned Tinkercad for the 3D design. And uh, we had a great time working through some things and the kids absolutely loved it. And obviously we can do so much with 3D printing not just prototype work for product managers, but also we're you know moving into actually manufacturing production parts. Right. We have lots we can dive into. First, give us your background. How did you get involved with the 3D printing? I'm an engineer, mechanical engineer by education, and my first job was working at Sikorsky Aircraft designing helicopters. So mm-hmm. I was introduced to uh, 3D printing. We used stereolithography uh, through a supplier to do some prototype helicopter parts. And, you know, back then in the mid nineties, what was state of the art is now relatively crude compared to the quality of a stereolithography part today. They could look like the lens of a car. So back then it was more of a foggy yellow part, but it it served a great purpose and was really exciting because we could get parts so quickly Uh and we didn't have that manufacturing delay. And then I transitioned from there into covering, I became a research analyst and covered the public companies that manufacture some of this equipment. And in the process of doing that, I realized that I really had a passion for producing, for making something. And I, through the network of companies that I was covering, I ended up getting back into what I call the real world of making (laughs) something. (laughs) And I left finance and took an industry position with one of the manufacturing companies that produces the machines. And I am now with a company, Fit America, who is an independent manufacturer. We incorporate many different OEM machines to provide uh, a really a wide range of solutions for, for our clients. So you have seen this from many perspectives as a customer and, you know, the 90s puts puts this in perspective a little bit. You know, 3D printing is by no means new, the, the basic filament approach. But we can talk about what, you know, the different options are for sure. But you've seen it from that customer's per- perspective, then covering it from a research perspective of what the providers are doing. Now you can't leave your engineering roots. You had to get back to actually making it. <laughs> exactly. So. Right. Well, I'm a woodworker by hobby. So, um, and, and being an engineer, I just, I need to make stuff. It's just, it's, it's very satisfying when you walk through and you actually have something and you physically make something. I, I have a, I only have one patent, but I have a patent. But yeah. Oh, I mean, so many of us have so much more than one, John, but that's okay. Go ahead and share <laughs> the one you have. Well, the, the point is that, um, there wasn't a lot of monetary benefit that I got from it, but there was just as an engineer, there's tremendous satisfaction that I yep. invented something that, that, you know, even as long, as far as we are into the manufacturing world, no one had actually thought of before. So that's, that was really satisfying. Excellent. And, and the woodworking is interesting to me because when we talk about 3D printing, um, it's part of the additive manufacturing class, right? The, 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 this yes. is what I learned in my little experience tr- tr- teaching the kids about 3D printing. <laughs> um, and then traditionally, uh, we have the subtractive manufacturing process, which is like CNC routers and, you know, milling machines and the like. And, right. and woodworking would certainly be, I would think, Absolutely. more subtractive. Subtractive. Yeah. It's all subtractive. <laughs> tell, tell us about yeah. th- that difference in where 3D printing fits in. Well, I, I think what's interesting uh, about subtractive and additive, and, and when I was a when I was educating people who, in the, especially in finance, who had no manufacturing background, I would try to explain to them why we call it additive manufacturing or three D printing. Mm-hmm. And I said, so think about ice cream. And so traditionally, 
we would get ice cream through someone would scoop it out of a container. That's And think of that as subtractive. I remove what I want or what I don't want. Uh, additive is soft serve ice cream. I deposit into a cone or into a cup only what I want or pretty close to what I want. And then they say, oh, I get it. That's the difference between subtractive and additive. And I said, and they, but they're complementary. Mm-hmm. Um, we, our company, one of the great benefits is that we have incorporated both additive and subtractive technologies alongside of each other because an additive, once you're done with the additive process, you still, in most cases, have to finish the part. Um, I have to machine a certain dimension, like with woodworking. I have to drill a hole, tap a thread, um, and I'll have a dimensional tolerance that, for most in most cases, the output from an additive machine is not going to give you that level of accuracy. Mm-hmm. But the good thing is, it's going to give me a near net shape. So if I was going to CNC a part or or using woodworking, I'm going to end up machining away a lot of material that I don't want, and that all is part of the cost of the part, and it's time. Right. Whereas with additive, I'm only depositing with with a little bit more material what the actual part's going to look like, and then I can finish those surfaces and those features to a higher tolerance using traditional technologies. So you might not end up with just what was 3D printed, but then do some work on that. Maybe are you saying might might mill that or polish it or something to give it? Sure, I, I think in almost every case that I can think of, we've used a traditional technology after we've done the additive to begin okay. with. If it's a metal part, we have to cut it off the build plate, so that's obviously a, a traditional technology. We'll have to remove some support material, but I might plate the part, I might machine certain surfaces, I might bead blast it. So yeah, I mean it's it's really doesn't replace subtractive technologies. I think it, mm-hmm. it's a great complement to, if you walk through any manufacturing facility, it's a great complement to what is already in the portfolio of, of a, a manufacturer. Okay. But but these aren't either or. It sounds like there's some real benefits of the additive. You, you talked about, you know, probably just overall time involved, perhaps, specifically that there's less material being used. And some of these parts I've seen, uh, including ones that your company ha- has put together as, as examples, there isn't any other way to manufacture some of these, right? You can't do it through a subtractive process. Correct. And I think really, you know, as a, as a former design engineer, I think what we have to remember is a design engineer doesn't traditionally specify the machine to make the part. They design the part. This is what I want. And then they rely on the expertise of the manufacturing department to realize that part. What are we going to use to make this part? to match this design. Mm -hmm. So the advantage of additive is it just opens up the design freedom because in some cases the part's just relatively simple and it's best CNC machine. I mean, CNC machines are very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. But in other cases, as you pointed out, we have some designs or our customers have some designs that can only be realized through additive. So if we're doing an internal lattice structure, for example, to um, I mean, think about a bridge. Uh, you drive across a bridge. A bridge isn't solid. A bridge has lattice structure. It has has various supports. It has cables. That's all to give it strength with a minimal amount of material. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can make parts in a similar way where it could be a cylinder head, and instead of it being a solid casting, we those walls can actually be have a lattice structure inside to give it the stiffness and the strength equal to what the original design specified, but 
leaving out quite a bit of material. So this is helping us deal with some of those engineering constraints we have when we're designing products. Like we want something lighter weight, but at the same time stronger and using a lattice structure for the internal makeup of the material would be one way of achieving that. Correct. Okay. You mentioned uh, materials here, right? And so I think a lot of us that aren't as familiar with 3D printing, um, you know, any more of the filament um, plastic printers are, are almost everywhere, it seems like. Um, right. And so we're used to printing with um, the a- ABS type material or the, um, and let's see, it's been so long now for me on 3D printing, I'm drawing blank on the other common plastic or sort of material that's made out of corn, but regardless, <laughs> right. help us with materials here. You, you said metal, but what are the kinds of things that can be used for printing? Well, I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of the of the meetings that I have with with prospective clients when I when I go to visit them and I have our sample cases and I open them up and they start to look at all the the range of materials and the first thing that catches their eye is the aluminum cylinder head or uh, a titanium bracket or a stainless steel um, pipe and the first many of them will say I didn't realize you could print metals or they would think that I used another technology like investment casting. Mm through additive to make those parts. I said, no, we directly printed those those parts. So to your point, uh, the FDM machines, the desktop machines are a fantastic way to expand the understanding of 3D printing and to uh, address a wider audience like my son who's in seventh grade. It's, it's, it's a great way for them to learn. But the material sets are so much broader than that. I mean, not only can we do an increasing range of plastics and polymers, um, one company is even producing carbon fiber parts hmm. that in, in terms of metals, the number, the range of steels is expanding. Aluminum alloys are expanding, uh, different grades of titanium, inconel. So really it's, it's, there's, I don't see a limit to the material sets that are going to be a offered through additive. It's just a matter of understanding the market opportunities because there are so many materials that are used traditionally mm-hmm. that you want to find the ones that are going to pr- give you the biggest market opportunity up front. And then you can start to expand into some of those other market opportunities later on. Yeah. And that's an amazing range of, of materials. We could make our whole discussion about this, but if you can just overview, how does actually printing with metal work the common 3D plastic printing, we're basically just oozing out warm plastic, right? We're, we're extruding drops of plastic where we need it and make a stream and we, we build up an object. Right. How does this work when you're doing metal? So with metal and, and even with some of the plastic technologies, we can use a laser to solidify the particles. So if we, if we focus on the metal side, think of it as welding. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we have, a, we have a bed of metal powder. And we have a, a laser, in most cases, that will um, trace the, a slice of the part. So think of a, a loaf of bread, and, and you think of it, it's obviously in slices. Right. So we're printing one slice at a time, and when we're done, we have the whole loaf of bread. Right. So in a similar way, if we have a part, we're going to be printing this one slice at a time until we get to the finished part. And it's one layer of metal powder, whether it's aluminum powder, steel, titanium, inconel, what have you. Mm-hmm. And, and in other, some of our other machines, we're doing it with plastics too. So yeah. we're, we're laser sintering a plastic material. What you were describing is a fused deposition modeling, which is basically like a glue gun where right. we're depositing material and 
there's other ways. Uh, there's um, there's other ways where you can spray metal onto a part, huh. so it actually comes through uh, some jets, and then it hits the focal point of a laser, and basically becomes a plasma, and it's deposited in layers on the surface of a part. So that's another opportunity for repair of parts, or even to uh, to do that in conjunction with CNC machining. So you can have a hybrid process where you're doing a little bit of additive and then you go in and machine it and then you come back and do a little bit more additive. So there's, huh. there's all kinds of, of iterations and variations on, on how this technology is evolving. I appreciate you going through that. You know, conceptually they, it sounds very similar to me, you know, from what we're doing with the, the filament printing and just doing that one level, that one layer at a time. This is just Correct. fusing the material with a laser in this case, or some other tools that might be used too. Okay. Right. All very interesting. At least from my perspective, I typically think about 3D printing as a product manager for prototyping. And I certainly have been, you know, working with companies where they have all kinds of prototyping tools around, including, a, you know, an array of 3D printers to help with things. It sounds like we're also moving into developing parts for the course of production things here. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment, but I'm bringing a new segment called I Wish I Had Known That Sooner. That's what I most often hear when I train product managers, them telling me, I wish I had known that sooner. In a recent interview, number 149, with Dr. Mike Mitchell from the Center for Creative Leadership, he told us about the 85% gap. When CCL surveys leaders, 98% of them say that innovation is important to their organizations. But when the same leaders are asked if their organization is effective at innovation, only 14% say they are. With rounding, Mike calls this the 85% gap. And other research studies share similar results, with CEOs saying innovation is really important to the future of the organization, but the actual effectiveness with innovation is lacking. So why does this occur? One reason is the culture of the organization. Most established organizations actively limit change. They don't like change because they're optimized for existing operations and perhaps continuous improvement in those operations. So they rebel against change in other areas that are really outside of those operations. And by necessity, innovation requires change. It means we're doing something new, something different. In my idea framework, which I use to train product managers who want to become product masters, I start with an examination of culture and strategy. It's often overlooked, but it's a really important foundation for understanding how not to be frustrated inside the organization. In the Innovation 1000 report, examining the culture of 1,000 innovative companies, the most important element of culture was stated as a strong identification with the customer and an overall orientation toward the customer experience. Okay, you got that? Strong identification with the customer and an orientation toward the customer experience. That means they're thinking about the customer experience. So how do you begin to change the culture of your organization to effectively innovate and develop new products? Well, begin with the customer. Talk with your colleagues about what customers want and expect and how the current product or products are meeting or missing customers' expectations. When you encounter resistance towards a product idea that you have, ask questions about the existing customer experience and contrast how a current product makes a customer feel versus how an improved version or new product could make them feel and the value that it could provide that customer. When you and your colleagues begin discussions about what is best for the customer, you'll find that the culture will quickly change. 
and start supporting innovation and new product development. To learn more about this and other practices that equip product managers and innovators to excel in their careers, just go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash idea, I-D-E-A, and check out the Idea Framework course. I hope you enjoyed this new I Wish I Had Known That Sooner segment for product managers and innovators. Now, back to our interview with John. Let me ask you about the prototyping aspect first. What's been your, your experience with just how this can help us do a better job prototyping as we iterate a design to until we get to something that we think is really right for the customer? Well, I think one benefit of, of additive for or 3D printing for prototyping is that you don't have the tooling that goes into it. So you can uh, you can produce prototypes much faster. You can also produce uh, a wide range of variations of the prototype mm-hmm. and and test them uh, simultaneously. So little ergonomic changes. If it's a consumer product, you might change the the look of it. You might change maybe where you hold it, uh, the surface finish, all these different things. And there's no tooling involved. So you could produce a hundred variations, have people go out and, and market it, product market, test it, come back and decide, okay, what are the best features you like? Incorporate that into your final design and then invest in your tooling. If you're going to do injection molding or if you're going to cast the part, uh, or, or what other traditional process, if it's going to be a very high volume part. Right. It also, you can, because of post-processing advancements such as platings, we can metal plate plastic parts. So I could make a metal bowl prototype out of plastic, chrome plate it, silver plate it, whatever, whatever process you want. Huh. It'll look and feel like the real part. It might be, it'll weigh a little bit less, but I can produce that very quickly. And so you can get an ergonomic evaluation of it pretty quickly, with, again, without the tooling. Um, I think another thing that I like to discuss with about prototyping is th- you have to be careful about the definition of it because there are some large manufacturers where they might produce 100 assemblies or 100 parts for their prototyping. Mm-hmm. There are other companies where 100 parts is production. Right. So it... It also comes down to size. If you know, we make a lot of medical implants that are relatively small out of titanium, the, the output, the volume is pretty high, but because the parts are relatively small, we're able to make those as production parts on only a couple of machines. Hmm. Now, if we were talking about the same volume, but we're talking about engine blocks, okay, now we're going to need larger machines or many more machines in order to do that. But... Um, that econo- the economics of that are constantly getting more favorable. Machines are getting faster. They're getting bigger. The cost curve is going down. So what is economical today for production or what is not economical today for production next year could be very economical. Right. Um, and so I think that one of the great advantages of the prototyping is you can stretch your design cycle out longer because you're not committing to tooling yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to settle for, well, that's good enough because you did the tooling and it's not exactly what you want, but you don't have the time to invest in the tooling again and the cycle and the cost. So I think that's one of the greatest aspects it, when you start with the production side, the prototyping side is you, you don't have to settle because of some traditional constraints. And as you said, you can get a real ergonomic evaluation very quickly and then know that you're, you are you have exactly what you want if you are going to tool for a higher scale production. That's right. Re- really powerful capabilities. And I suspect a lot of our listeners, if they're in organizations doing physical work like this, they, they have a 3D printer somewhere in their facility. But I think 
going through steps, you know, when, when I think of prototyping for products, we might start with, you know, foam, literally, right? We're, that we're cutting up foam or putting stuff together out of wood sure. or cardboard, right? But move to a part where we say, I really want to get customers' feedback on what we think this is going to actually be like, you know, get, put something in their hands or use this and having it be ergonomically correct to what we are designing, the physical part, is really powerful. And knowing that that's going, when we actually do run large-scale production, if that's what we need to do, that it's going to look the same. Exactly. And if we don't need large-scale production, we can just keep turning out our printed parts. That's right. And it also gives you the flexibility. So if if your volumetric requirement, your annual volumetric requirement is not, is is addressable with additive, one of the other advantages is you can change your design each year and you haven't invested in tooling. Right. So you can be a lot more flexible with iterations of that product because A, you don't have to amortize the expense of the tooling and B, you don't have to invest in new tooling if you want to make a design change because you're completely flexible on on the uh, on the product production. Excellent. And for everyday innovators listening, I know we're talking about, you know, obviously physical things here. Even if you're not in that space, if you're doing software service, there's always so much pullover from the other industries that we can really learn from. And just if this sounds like we're from a whole different country talking at the moment, John, just explain what tooling means real quick. So with it. Well, if I was going to uh, make a case for, uh, let's say, a laptop, I would have to, and I'm going to injection mold that. So I'm going to take pellets of plastic, and I'm going to, with an auger, basically have that warm pellets being forced into a tool, into a cavity. Like a mold. Like a mold. So the mold would be the tool. So I'm, so if I'm going to invest, so if I'm going to make a a product out of a polymer or a plastic and I'm going to injection mold it because the volume is very high and I want a good surface finish, uh, the, the tooling for that, the mold could be very expensive and take quite a bit of time to produce. And then I would really need to have a pretty high output in order to amortize the expense of that tooling. Right. And it's a large investment up front, depending on how complicated it, the item is that you're trying to produce. Well, and we and one of the, one of the interesting things about our portfolio is that we do offer injection molding. Mm-hmm. We also offer vacuum molding. So there's sometimes we use additive to produce the tooling. Sometimes we use additive to produce the pattern for our vacuum mold, mm-hmm. and sometimes we just produce the part additively. So, you know, we can really be give the full range of options to a client. Uh, as long as we have the right conversation, well, what, what are you looking to get out of this part? What's important to you about this part? And then we can have a much more, uh, we can contribute more to the, to the design and to the production. If we understand fully um, what the purpose is of the part and, and what are the aspects of it that are critical to the client. That's a really good point. And it's the perspective of finding the right tool that is most suited for the problem and using it and not trying to, you know, use one tool, you know, the massive hammer to do things it wasn't really meant to do. Right. So, for example, when I would design a part as, as a design engineer, I wouldn't tell the manufacturing people, I want this done on a CNC machine or I want this done on that machine. Mm-hmm. It's up to them when they look at the part to determine what is the, what is the best combination of tools to make this part given all the different variables that go into it, the volume, the cost, uh, this, the complexity of the part. Good. If we were going to adopt 3D printing, if we're not really using it or using it to the extent that we could now for, let's just say, our prototyping work, can you walk us through what's needed to get involved with that? You know, we need something to do design on, right? And how do we actually make this happen? 
Well, you mentioned Tinkercad. My son is in seventh grade. They use Tinkercad. I mean, really, the, the, I think the, the, the most important thing for, for anyone that we work with is that you provide a CAD file, okay. a computer-aided design file. We have an engineering service. We could even do that. But, but usually, the, the minimum interaction we have with a, with a client is that they would provide us with a CAD file. We'd have a discussion about the part, and then my colleagues would uh, do, the po- do the pre-processing, evaluate the part, make sure that it's printable, and then they would um, set that up into the machine, identify any, um, any characteristics that we need to be aware of, and we produce the part. So you, to your question, you don't need a machine. You don't need the, the slicing software is something that anyone who produces the parts is going to have, or the, or the, the that'll be embedded in the machine itself. Hmm. You really just need a design idea and some piece of software that can output a file that the machine would read. Typically a, a step file or an STL file is compatible with, with any 3d printer or added a machine. And for listeners, uh, Tinkercad, uh, like your son and seventh grade uses, we chose that because it's an online tool. And so we, we tried a few tools. The ones that you had to download sometimes crashed on us. So this was just online CAD tool that is super easy to make. It's now managed by uh, Autodesk and works really well. Interesting. We developed NetFab, which is a, a very uh, common software. It's, it's industry-wide, and it takes – it in interfaces between the CAD software packages that are available and the machines. Hmm. Uh, it does a number of things, but we actually had sold that to Autodesk okay. back in 2015. So that uh, many of our clients who work with CAD are familiar with NetFab, and that enables the CAD file to uh, interface with the machine, similar to when you send a file from a, a Word document or, or a spreadsheet document to your printer, there's going to be an interface that's going to translate what you intended with what your out- output actually is. Okay. So pretty easy to get into this. Um, if our seventh graders are figuring out Tinkercad, that's a, a pretty easy one to move into and, and pretty robust. And then use a service such as yours for actual printing. Or if we're doing, just want to start figuring this out, you know, the little desktop filament printer might be a way to start getting some experience with this. When it comes to, like a lot of things that your organization moves into of printing with the different materials, you know, aluminum or titanium, stainless steel and the like, and moving more into pre-production manufacturing and actually, you know, as you said, parts manufactured for, for deployment for use. Where do you think we are right there now? You know, I occasionally see the headline about, I forget what the last one was, you know, a, a part that was 3D printed for a Boeing jet engine or something, right, that, for mm-hmm. production use. What, what is the state of, of the market there now for using this for manufacturing? Well, what's, what, I think one of the most interesting things, things about FIT, the company that I work for, is our CEO, Carl Fruth, started the company uh, or almost 24 years ago as a production manufacturer. The, the goal is to do serial production with additive hmm. to get beyond. I mean, prototypes is important because you have to understand what your part's going to look like and to, to settle on a design. But the way that our factory is set up is for production. Mm-hmm. We have a, a very large, we have a high number of machines in all different materials. We just made some announcements about additional capacity that we just purchased. Um, so our goal is is to move our clients into production through additive. 
And it, it does require quite a bit of an investment. It, re- it requires a, a deep understanding of these systems and all the variables, all the cost variables, because we understand that every year, a client of ours who is using us for production is going to expect that the price is going to decline like it does with traditional production. Okay. So, so we're spending an incredible amount of time and resource to understand all the variables that go into the pre-production of the part, the production of the part, and the post-processing of the part. And w- all the way down to, um, you know, uh, cleaning up the part afterwards, uh, making sure that the part quality is high, that there's very low scrap rate because that obviously affects cost and profitability. So when I have a conversation with a client and they might have a machine, I think that's great. But when their volume goes up, it's very difficult for them to scale up one machine or two sure. machines. And I try to, ex- I try to make the, um, the, ex- the, um, you know, try to explain to them that the process of using additive as a supplier being able to do volume is very similar to their use of other suppliers for traditional parts that are being produced. Mm-hmm. Um, and given the volume of machines and the, the knowledge that we have, we're going to get a lot of consistency, whether we make it on machine one or machine 15 or machine 25, they're going to get the same part. And, and that takes time to be able to develop that consistency in, with additive because these machines are um, they're very sophisticated, but they also require there's a pretty steep learning curve to get them fully functioning. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, and there's occasionally calibrating and other factors that go in to keep these things, you know, doing the same thing over time. I think one of the things that I try I try to explain, you know, I think sometimes uh, someone who's new to additive thinks differently than they do traditional manufacturing in terms of their whole um, relationship with their supplier and that um, the, you know, their expertise is designing that product, whether it's a race car or a yacht or a consumer product, their expertise isn't necessarily manufacturing. That's our expertise Mm -hmm. and more focused on additive. So, you know, I, I don't know how to design a race car, but I know how to help them get that part produced additively. And so that's where there's a great complement in, in between our expertise and their expertise. Yeah, it's interesting to me that the, your organization started as a production manufacturing facility more than two decades now. Right. And so you really are a manufacturing partner. You happen to be additive and other processes, but you're really a manufacturing partner and you're taking advantage of additive where it makes sense. Yes. Okay, we could talk about this further. I, I am just very intrigued about the applications. I, I think uh, the you know anyone designing physical products that we will find ourselves more and more working with additive manufacturing over time if we're not already. I mean, the things we can do are just amazing. But I also want to move us towards <laughs> sure. what I always love to ask, which is that innovation quote. And uh, I love sharing innovation quotes with our listeners. And what did you bring for us, and why did you choose that one? I found a quote by Ayn Rand. Uh, it, it really is almost generic to a lot of things that we face, whether it's as a designer, as a, you know, playing sports, just in daily life. And I think given that additive is relatively new and there's sometimes there's resistance to change, um, I love the, this quote. And the quote is, the question isn't who is going to let me, it's who is going to stop me. And, and I think if you 
look at additive, it opens up your design freedom. Hmm. And before you could design something and, and you'd get someone say, I'm sorry, but we can't do that. And now I can say, yes, I can. Mm-hmm. And this is how we're going to do it. It's nice to have options that were in possibilities only existed before. Right. So, and that's very much what we are about in innovation too, is looking at something that might be new that people say that that's not possible and then find a way to make it happen anyhow. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it additive has been described as a disruptive technology. And we don't like to use that term. We like to use it strategic. It's it's complementary mm-hmm. um, because disruptive. If you're a manufacturing company, disruptive is is not a good term, <laughs> right? Right. You don't want your business disrupted. <laughs> it's and and it shouldn't create an atmosphere of of anxiety. It's it's another tool. You know, as 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 sophisticated as manufacturing facilities will become, there's always the need for a hand operated drill press. Because sometimes you just need to drill a hole. Yeah, having the right tool, again, for the right problem is what engineers want to do, to efficiently solve the problem with the best tool available. Right, and we've just, you know, additive is, is, a, is, is the central technology for, for fit, but it's also around production. It's around taking ideas from the prototype phase into production, because ultimately, if, if you're designing more compli- complex parts, once you finalize the design, your only ability, your only way to make that part is going to be additively. And you need to be able to provide the capacity and the volume output to move from that design phase into the production phase. Very good. And for listeners that want to find out more about how you guys actually do that for them, how can they follow up with you and learn more about your business? So uh, in the US, the, the US subsidiary of Fit AG, which is our German parent, is Fit America. Uh, my email is john.baliotti, B-A-L-I-O-T-T-I, at fit-america.com. They can also call me. My number is 203-246-9110, and I'd be happy to discuss this in, uh, in greater detail. John, thank you for your time. I appreciate you sharing the information with us about what is going on with 3D printing and additive manufacturing. Chad, thanks very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with John at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 153. Also, don't forget to learn more about the foundational course for making your move from product manager to product master. That's the Idea Framework online course. And you'll find it for a special price just for listeners at theeverydayinnovator.com slash idea. That's I-D-E-A. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.